Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been of him. By this we know that we love the children. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that was overcome of the world, our faith. Who is, the, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in Jesus, the Son of God? Will you join me in praying? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, come before you as your children, Father, seeking your face. Lord, your word is truth. And we believe in you, Father. We believe in your word. Lord, we uh, come before you and we pray for Jackie. We ask your anointing over him and his teaching and the message you have for us today, Lord. Lord, we just want to be a blessing to you. And so we raise up this church to you, raise up this body. Lord, we raise up our worship to you. And we pray all these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we are, I know for some people they look and they go, 1 John 5, we're almost done. You know me, you know that's not true. Um, we'll probably have a couple more times together. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about textual criticism next time, next Sunday. So if that's some, a subject that interests you, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll discuss that a little bit next week. If you remember, as we come to 1 John, the theme is that the things that John is laying out for us to do, how we are to walk with Christ, walk in the light as children of the light, the way we are able to accomplish that is through Jesus Christ. He is the word of life. Remember with Jesus in John chapter 6, he, he delivers a difficult message to the masses. Are you aware that great numbers of people don't necessarily want to hear the truth. <laughs> Crazy, huh? Jesus in John chapter 6 has a huge following. And if you remember John chapter 6, Jesus says, Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. And the people freaked out a little bit. Well, they freaked out a lot. In fact... Everybody walked out the back. And Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And they said, where else would we go? No one else has the words of life. John writes in 1 John that the word of life is Jesus Christ. And he's the, he is the source of everything, right? Now, he is the one who has given us the spirit, right? He's the source of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. He's the one who's given us justification, sanctification, glorification, the three aspects of salvation. We all see flow from Jesus Christ. He is everything. But there is something in the life of a believer that hinders us. So when we take communion, we give ourselves a moment to do what the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, sin hinders us. But the Lord has provided, again, through Jesus Christ, that we can make confession, that we can confess our sin. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, I just want to I want to give a little bit of delineation because it does confuse some people. Kathy and I were, were talking about that earlier this week. And they talk about, well, I keep repenting and, I, and then I keep falling into the same sin. And, and so does that mean my repentance is not real? So let me back up. When you come to faith in Christ, you repent of the sin in your life. You turn from the world or self, and you turn toward Christ. And then as a believer walking, you confess. You've already made repentance, so track with me. You've already made repentance. I'm not saying you never sin. I'm not saying you don't have to change your direction, but I am saying that what the, the vernacular of the Bible uses so as not to confuse us from turning from the world off of the road that leads to death, and we get on the road that leads to life following Christ, from that point now, we walk in confession. God, I confess. I agree with you. That's what confession means. God, I agree with you. What I just did or what I thought, that was sinful. Forgive me. And God says, you are forgiven. And that enables me not to come under condemnation, right? The book of Romans tells us, for we are, we are not condemned in Christ, right? We have life in Christ. And so we, we see that confession, we make confession that keeps us out. Now the Bible tells us, look, if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord can't hear you. So if I'm holding on to sin and I'm saying this sin is not sin or this is, this is just how I am, I've made that statement to my wife a number of times. She always loves it when I, when I start preaching to me. So, um, no, I, I don't have the freedom in Christ to say this is just how I am. The Lord met me how I am. Yeah, for sure. He met me where I was. None of my sin freaks him out. You know, he met me there. But then, as I turn from that and turn to him, I no longer regard my iniquity. It means I no longer want to hold it. I no longer want to walk in it. How can we who have died to sin live any longer therein? So we turn from it and we make confession. Lord, forgive me. I agree with you, Lord, this is sin. And God forgives us and we try again. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that a righteous man falls seven times and then what? Gets up again. The point from the book of Proverbs teaching us how to walk on the walk of life is not that he only falls seven times and never falls again. Seven is a, is a unique number in the Bible, right? It, it is something that is repeated over and over and over. It's, the, it's a number of perfection or completion. It means a righteous man falls over and over and over and over, but he does what? He gets up, he confesses his sin, and he continues to follow his Savior. That's the life of a believer, not a life made perfect, other than we're made perfect in Christ. But our behavior is act of confession, eyes on the prize, and we keep moving which direction? 
forward, right? Because the Lord said, no man who puts his hand to the plow and does what? Looking back is fit for the kingdom. Paul would say, not that I am already perfecter, I have already attained, but there's one thing I do. He said, I forget what is behind me, and I move on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I put my eyes on the prize, and I keep moving forward. And that's what John is discussing with us. Now, there's two things. Remember I told you John writes symphonically. He writes like a song. So he'll do a verse and a chorus. So he's going to talk about love, and he's going to talk about deception. He's going to warn us about those two things cyclically, not linearly. He doesn't write in a straight line. So he's going he's gonna to remind us of these things cyclically. And, and currently we're still talking about the concept of love. Loving God, loving the brethren. And so in chapter 5, this is where we're at. And he's saying he wants us to understand this mark of a believer. And this is an important concept for us to grapple with. He says in, in 1 John 5 verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, today, we're going to have uh, a baptism today. I think I'm going to have a baptism. Yeah, we're going to have a baptism, right? Yeah, I'll always, I'm always happy when the person I'm baptizing is here. <clears throat> and we could, we could do it now, but we're not going to. But when we do a baptism, these are the questions that we ask every person. It's, it, the point of being baptized is to make a public confession of your faith. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, right? If we confess the Lord Jesus with our mouth and believe God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved, right? So we're making a confession. What's that confession? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? That means he is the promised Messiah. And is he the Lord of your life? So we want this confession here. He, here John says, everyone who says Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, there's a lot of things involved in that, and you'll see it as he finishes out the thought in verse 1. He says, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, there's a couple of points that he's making here. Whoever loves the Father also loves whoever has been begotten, monogamous. Whoever has been begotten of him. I don't really like the word begotten. Uh, I, I prefer some of the, the newer translations. But the point is, we're born of God through the sacrifice of Christ. You and I become brethren together in the family of God. By adoption, through the blood of Christ, we are ushered in. But there's one who is unlike us all. That's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the Son too. There's no way to have the Father without the Son. And there's no way to have the Father be one mode of God and the Son another mode of God, because there's no relationship that way. See, the Bible teaches that the Father and Son have had an eternal relationship from before the foundation of the world. In fact, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always been unified. So he's laying out this idea. Now, John gives us another, another 
uh, idea of this in his gospel, okay? John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Why, John? Why did you write the gospel of John? Look what he says. Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples. You read the gospels, there's lots of signs. Some of them are shared by all of them, and some are only in one gospel or another. But John writes this, and he says, <clears throat> he did many signs, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe. What's the point? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you would have life in his name. Now there's a, a couple of things we need to understand. The Son of God was a title. Every king in the ancient Near East in ancient times took this title. The Egypt is the son of Ra. He is God's voice peace on earth. Every king that would rise up, no, whether they were the Philistines or whether they were Moabites or what, it doesn't matter, Ammonites, they would, the king was considered to be the son of God. Now, one thing that all the people knew, yeah, you're not anything but a dude. Why? How do they know that? Because every kingdom of man does what? It falls down. But the Bible talks about one kingdom that will never fall. That's the kingdom of our God, Jesus Christ. The kingdom of Jesus Christ will, has no end, right? So when Jesus makes a proclamation that he's the son of God, he's saying, no, I really am. I really am God in the flesh. That's what that title means. It doesn't mean little born one. It, he never uses that phrase. I'm the little born one. No, he says, I am the son of God. I am the real king. When Pilate said, are you a king then? What did Jesus say? Well, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is what? Not of this earth. This is not my time. If it was, my people would fight. Does Jesus need a lot of help to fight? Do you really think Pilate has any power over him other than what Jesus grants? No. The Son of God is a title. The Son of God declares Jesus Christ to actually be what every political leader from the beginning of the eons of time to today has proclaimed of himself. Whether they actually say the words or not, every political leader... Um, in opposition to God will act, if not say, that they are the voice of God for all the people. But you see, Jesus Christ was that voice. These things are written so that you would believe Jesus is the anointed one of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, God in the flesh. In Colossians <clears throat> chapter 2, Verse 8, Paul writes this to Colossae. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this is a point. How do we bring, he's, he's challenging the people, bring every thought captive in Christ, every philosophy, every study, everything we do, Everything we are a part of as a believer is either in Christ or it's not. So if it's not in Christ, it should be. If you do math, you should do math in Christ. Math, English, history, doesn't matter. All things are thoughts. Aren't they thoughts? 
So all thoughts are brought captive in Christ. Listen, here's what he says. What's the point? Verse 9, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. What's another way of saying that? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. John is writing and he's saying, look, this is the confession that makes someone born of God. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ, they love the Father and they love the Son. And previously in John chapter 4, we talked about it. If you love the Father and you love the Son, you also love your brothers. You love your brothers. If you say you love Christ and you hate your brother, the, John already wrote, you're a liar. You're a liar. If you cannot love your brother who you see, you are not loving God who you can't. And this love of God we've been discussing is something that is poured out in our lives by the Holy Spirit, given to us by Jesus Christ, the word of life, the answer for all these things. As we consider this, Fill with a tie. Everybody know who Phil with a tie is? No? So the Phil who read, that's Phil not with a tie. And Phil with a tie has a tie. Phil, wave, wave your hand so everybody knows who you are. So Phil, Phil with a tie. He was, uh, he was reading some John Piper and he came across this definition. Last time, you remember I, I shared a definition of Vody Bachman's. This time, uh, John Piper's, I really like it. I love John Piper. This is what he says. Love is the overflow and expansion of joy in God, which gladly meets the needs of others. It's the overflow. I love how, how Piper does that stuff. He's kind of a bit of a wordsmith for me. But the overflow and expansion of joy in God, finding our satisfaction, fulfillment in God, and then that joy flows out of us, just like the Bible describes in Romans chapter 5. It flows out of us to meet the needs of others. If you love God, you love his son and all who have been born of God. Who are all the people who have been born of God? Everyone who's, who believes Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. So you have both, love the Father, love the Son, love the brethren, all wrapped up, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. This is the relationship of faith and love, because without faith in God, there's no outpouring of love in the life of a believer, and you can't churn it up. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in a life that is submitted and committed to Christ, you won't have that love. It's not natural. Natural wants to give someone what they deserve, right? But that's not how we have learned Christ. We have learned Christ in such a way that we give what's not deserved. We pour out the love of God in grace, in mercy the same grace and mercy that I have received and in an attitude of forgiveness. Does that mean there's no accountability? No, it's not what it means. God's people still speak the truth in love, but they have to speak the truth how? In love. So he goes on, listen, the recognition that we love one another. Look at verse 2. By this we know we love the children of God. So he's still talking about loving one another. Why do you think John spends so much time talking about loving each other? 
We've been talking about loving one another. If you've been coming for the last several weeks, we've been talking about this a long time. You guys got it? Yes. Now we know why John's talking about it still. Look, this is one of, I, I would say this is probably the single greatest struggle in, in church life. Church life. It's the ability to love each other. And we've, this is something that we must have. This is not one of those, you know, well, that, you know, you, you can take it or leave it. No, you don't get to take or leave this one. You can take or leave music styles. You can take or leave a lot of things, but you can't take and leave loving one another. You have to. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. And not new in the sense of you never heard this before, but I got a, I got a fresh part to it. Jesus said, I want you to love one another as I love you. That's, he defines it, not me. If your Bible has red words, that's red words. So these are Jesus, this is Jesus saying, this is what is required. And so he wants us to know, this is how you'll know. This is how you'll know. And he, and he pins it to commandments. And then people start getting sideways. Don't get sideways. The commandment hasn't changed. By this they will know, we, we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. What is his commandment he's talking about? Yeah, love one another. What did Jesus say when he talked about the commandments? Lord, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what Jesus said? The greatest commandment is to love God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you know the Ten Commandments, you know the Ten Commandments divide just like that. Commandments that are directed toward God, that express love toward God, and commandments that are directed toward uh, mankind, that show your love toward mankind. Love one another. Love God. Love people. This is the challenge that God gives us. Now, John specifically here in 1 John is saying, look, I'm focused on brothers. So I want you to love the brethren. Because I've heard a lot of people say, I don't, I, you know, I got to sit on the other side of the church because uh, that dirtbag comes and he's on the other side. And I don't want to bump into him. I don't want to see him. I hate that guy. I know people who don't come to church anymore because they say, I, I just can't see this person. Uh, okay, so let's start. I'm going to teach First John for the next 10 years. <laughs> love one another. You love them the way Christ loved you. Did you give a lesser offense to Christ than whatever thing someone's done to you? Do you honestly think you have offended God less than that brother or person in your life has offended you? And what did God do? He sent his son to die for you, to become your propitiation, to bring salvation into your life. How do you withhold from someone else? We talk about this because Jesus is our example, right? We're trying to follow Christ. And in, I think it's 1 Peter chapter 2, around 21, Peter's describing Jesus' walk. And he says, now when he was reviled... He did not revile in return. So when people were, were 
mistreating Christ, how did he behave? It says when he was beaten, he did not threaten. So he's, he takes a beating, he does not threaten, but rather entrusted himself into the hands of his father. Peter says this is our example, to walk like Christ walked. So when we experience these things in relationships in the world, the point when we experience those relationships is to say, look, I'm going to entrust myself in the hands of God. And I'm going to allow the love of God that he gave me to flow out of my life. That's what sets this faith apart. If you would love the children of God, then you will you will love God and obey his commandments. All the law and the prophets is summed up in this. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the summation of the law. It's not complicated. May not be easy to perform, but it's not complicated. We understand it, right? We understand, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. What are the commandments? Love God. Love people. Someone loves people. If someone loves their neighbor, they will not sleep with their neighbor's wife. Right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. If someone loves his neighbor, they won't rob him if he leaves his garage open. Thou shalt not steal. If someone loves his neighbor, he will not murder him. Thou shalt not commit murder. You guys get the point, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have the definition of love laid out for us, right? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I don't have love, what's the point? No point. If I, if I know, if I have all faith so that I have so much faith, I can heal everyone, I can move mountains, I can do all that, but I have not love, what good is it? No good at all. If I have all knowledge, but I don't have love, what good is it? No good. These three abide, faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is. So we, we want to see this love flow through us. So this is the love of God we keep. Now, that, I've, I've talked about this before. That word keep is not just the idea of obey. That word keep is the idea of treasure. Do you value God's law? Do you value God's commandments? Do you want to do the things Jesus is asking you to do? It's funny because sometimes people will come, Jackie, I need to have an appointment. I, I don't really know what God wants me to do. You know, usually I know what they're asking, but sometimes I'll do this. Well, the Lord wants you to love him. The Lord wants you to love your neighbor. If you're married, the Lord wants you to love your wife. Where do we find all those things? In his word. How do we know what God wants? We spend time in his word and we say, and, it, and I value it. I want to receive from you, Lord, through your word to understand how is my life supposed to be lived out. I want to express the love of God through my life.
And then this last phrase, he says, for this is the love of God. We keep his commandments. We treasure. We walk in them. We want to know them. And his commandments are not too heavy. Now, fat people tell me, Lord, you, you don't know. You don't know this is so heavy. Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, the way that works, ladies and gentlemen, is you take the hurts other people have done to you. You take the bitterness and your anger and your frustration with others, the, the, the horrible things people have done, and you bring them to Christ because he's able to carry them. And you lay your burden down. Now, here's the problem. You want to be the judge, so you pick it back up. But the Lord says, I'm the judge. Every time I say that phrase, I think of Flip Wilson. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? <laughs> Everybody like under 40 is going, what? <laughs> all, us, all us old people are like, yeah, I remember Flip Wilson. He had this skit he did called Here Come the Judge. So it has nothing to do with anything. But whenever I say that, who's the judge? Christ is the judge. The Bible says in John chapter 5, all judgment has been given by the Father to the Son. So who's going to judge the living and the dead? Jesus Christ. He's the judge. He's the one who, who paid the price. He has the right. He walked in my shoes. He knows what life is like here. He is worthy to judge. I am not. I know my hurts. I know my pain. This is why the Lord says to you, all of your tears are precious to me. That, that's not from an aspect that says, you know, it makes me happy to hurt you. That's not what he's talking about. What the Lord is talking about is all your pain matters to God. You need to hear this. All your pain matters to God. Every tear you cried, listen, this is what he told David. Every tear you cried, God says, I saved in my bottle. That's value. You have value to God. And your pain has value to God. And he will judge. Right. He keeps all of our tears, yours, mine, he keeps them all. He keeps them all, and he, so there's value in it. It's not nobody saw, Lord, where, you, where were you? Why did you let this happen? Those questions, you don't get answered. I'm not going to lie to you like everybody else does. You get to heaven, you'll get the answer. No, you won't. You get to heaven, you're not going to ask the question. Everybody else says, yeah, I get to heaven, and I got some questions for Jesus. No, you don't. 
Yeah, no, I got some questions for him. Look, there's a whole book in the Bible about that. It's called Job. And Job's life goes sideways and all this pain and suffering enters into his life. And Job says for like the first 30 some chapters, uh, I just want my day in court with God. I just want my day in court with God. I just want my day in court with God. And at the end of the book, guess what? He gets his day in court with God. And Lord says, yes. And Job, this is what, the, this is what Job says. Job says, who am I? Who am I? I know my pain and my hurt, and I know what has occurred to me, and those things are real, and they matter to God, and he values them. But that's not the whole picture. God has the whole picture. So he says, you let me judge. You relinquish judgment at the cross. You relinquish judgment at the cross. That's how we're able to not have a heavy burden to love one another. Because I laid down my right to judgment to condemn a brother or another person for their sin. Or, you know, I'm not talking about confront someone who's in sin. I'm talking about, I'm talking about crino, condemnation, judgment to condemn. I get none of that. No, I laid it down at the cross. That's Jesus' job. What he asked me to do, love God and love your brother. And that's a full-time job, just in case you didn't know. It takes a, a man or a woman willing to discipline themselves spiritually, to spend time in the word, to spend time in prayer, to walk in the disciplines of the Christian faith in order to be able to stand where we need to stand. It's not something that comes lazy. There's no pixie dust in Christianity. There's no magic wand waved over your head and poof, you become perfected. There is a person who, just like every other person in life who pursues anything, there's a person who is disciplined to rise up in the morning and walk with Christ. That's what a Christian is. Who, when he fails, he confesses. And he rises again. And our ability to love one another and pour out that love is not heavy. It's not a burden. It's not something like that for us because we understand my suffering and my pain matters to God. And so I give it all to him. When he bought me, he bought it all. Lock, stock, barrel. It's all his. All, every hurt, every tear I ever cried, all of those things gifted, laid out into the hands of the God who loves me. If we are tempted to think that love and obedience demanded of Christians are beyond our power, This verse that we're looking at, 1 John, it comes as a welcome source of strength and encouragement. The Lord is what we need. This is the love of God. We keep, we treasure his commandments and his commandments. They're not burdensome. 
Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then what did he say? Take my yoke upon you. And what? Learn from me. That's the walk of a Christian, right? We're yoked together with Christ. I'm supposed to go where Christ goes. Right? I'm supposed to walk the path he walked. What did Jesus say? I am gentle and lowly in heart. That means he's humble. He is the humble king. You know another king that would be born in a stable? Hated by the world. Submit to the judgment of men far inferior to him. Look, everything that Jesus did, he's calling us, come and follow me. My yoke is well-fitting. My yoke is easy. It means it doesn't rub you raw. It fits. You put it on, you go, oh, wow. It's like it was made for me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The commandments of God are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I want you to memorize these two verses. Everyone who has <clears throat> been born of God overcomes the world. Now, we come to the book of Revelation. At the end of the seven letters to seven churches, every letter ends with a word to the overcomer or the conqueror, depending on, on the translation. It doesn't matter. To me, it's the same word. So who is the overcomer? The one who overcomes. We think, oh, if you're the one who overcomes the warnings or if you overcome the stuff the Lord's given you, no. Everyone who has been born of God is an overcomer. Everyone who has been born of God is an overcomer. Everyone who has been born of God. That's the requirement. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. What's the victory? Faith. Not faith like some magical term that we have, that I have the faith that I can overcome. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the confession we began with. This is what overcomes our faith. What is our faith? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's our faith. The object of faith is what matters you can have, you have faith in those chairs because you're sitting in them you have faith in your car you have faith in a lot of things you have you some of you have faith in crazy ideas you have faith that if you order a big mac and a large fry and get a diet coke you'll lose weight <laughs> the object of faith is what matters the object of faith. What it, where is the object of our faith? It's the confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our focus on Christ, that is where we do so. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. The one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. This is what John wrote previously says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are to be holy. 
that word is just not a religious word that means you wear the right clothes and you're clean and you don't have dirty fingernails. That's not what holy means. Holy means you are set apart. You are either set apart in the world or you are set apart in Christ. He's the dividing line. So you do not love the world. The love of the Father is not in him. All that's in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, the pride of life, those things don't come from the Father. They're of the world. And the world is passing away. Are you paying attention? <clears throat> the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. But Jackie, I don't know the will of God. Let's repeat. The will of God is to love God and love your neighbor. The one who does the will of God, he will abide forever. We, we want to walk with Christ. John 16, I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome. And so he says, of every one who stands on the confession of Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is my Lord and Savior, my great God and King. He has saved me from the wrath of God. By his blood, I am washed clean. Jesus Christ, he's, he is... When, when the lines are drawn, and if you pay attention in the world, the lines are being drawn every day. When the lines are drawn, I will have no problem knowing where to stand. I will stand with Christ. And the world is in opposition to him. It's in opposition to what he is about and what he's doing. So he wants us to understand. He wants us to be able to walk in and experience the ground of victory in Christ. Our ground of victory in Christ is finished. You're not trying to get victory. You're standing in it now. He didn't say you will overcome. He's saying you are overcomers. In Christ, you are overcomers. You stand with him. That's what he's talking about. If you say, but I don't stand with him, then we go back. What's the will of God? That you love God and love your neighbor. You are separated from God because of your sin. You must repent and look to Christ as Savior. You must repent and believe. Confess Jesus is the Christ. Confess him as Lord. For us, that phrase, confess him as Lord, is kind of flippant, right? Okay, Jesus is Lord. Oh, wait, you missed it. In Rome, this is what would happen. Every year in Rome, in order to be a good Roman citizen, you would go to a temple of Caesar, the emperor. He was considered to be God in the flesh. Crazy, huh? Anyway, they would come to this temple, and they, all you had to do, you waited in line. You only had to do it once a year. It's not a big deal. You waited in line. You walk up to the altar. You take a pinch of incense, and you throw that incense. You know, it goes on the fire, smells nice, makes smoke go up in the air. You throw incense on the fire, and you declare, Kaiser est Kyrios. 
Caesar is Lord. And you're a good citizen of the state. As long as the state is Lord, you're a good citizen of the state. Six million Christians died during Rome. You know why? Because they said, no, Jesus is Kyrios. There's only one Lord. Ephesians tells us one Lord. Jesus Christ, that's it. There's no room for another. He is Lord. So they would confess him. They would walk up to that altar and they would, the people would say, Romans would say, what's the big deal? It's just words. It doesn't mean anything. But to the Christian, it meant something. There's only one Lord. There's only one God. There's only one King. His name is Jesus. I won't do it. So they fed them to the wild beasts. Or they dropped them in the gladiatorial games and they became fodder for the gladiators. Those days will come again. The Bible says that in the last days there will be an antichrist. So wicked a man will he be that he is called a beast. And the Bible says he will require everyone to take his mark. Now here's the funny thing. People, Christians all over the place, get all distracted. Let me tell you what the mark is not. It's not a vaccine. <laughs> it's not a vaccine. Stop. You don't have to take the vaccine. I'm not taking the vaccine. You don't have to take the vaccine. But it is not the mark. Okay? You get, we used to grow up in the land of the free and the home of the brave. So you used to be able to choose what, 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 what you did. You choose the vaccine, praise the Lord, come worship with us. has nothing to do with anything. Except maybe you, don't, you, won't, you won't get COVID. But it's not the mark of the beast. Uh, they have these chips. Oh, I knew it, Jackie. It's the chip. No, it ain't a dumb chip neither. What is, it has nothing to do with the chip. It's not technology. It's not vaccination. It is the choice to choose Antichrist as Lord. That's the choice. That's the mark. The Bible talks about every believer being marked with the mark of God. The prophets. I want to say it's Ezekiel. But it's not in my notes, so I'm not sure. So he, he marked them. He had, he had the, the prophet go dip his quill in the ink, and he marked on their foreheads. What is he saying? They're mine. That's the mark. They're mine. Why are they yours, Lord? Because they confess me. The Antichrist, the Bible says, this is the number of their name. And the people have been spending the rest of their life trying to figure out 666. It's been Henry Kissinger. It's been Obama. It's been everybody in the, on earth at one time or another. Someone has some unique a mechanical formation of, of numbers, mathematics, and they go, here's why 666. 666 is a human number. The Lord, he's seven. Six is man without Christ. The Bible 
you have a picture of a menorah. Okay, picture the menorah. One vine, six branches. Six is the number of man. Seven, number of completion, oftentimes considered a number of God. I want you to understand, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the, look at the menorah. Man, when he is unified to Christ, is complete. Man, when he is not unified with Christ, is lost. It is a human number, six, six, six. In Hebrew thinking, their only way to emphasize something is to repeat it three times. That's why the living uh, creatures around the throne, what do they do? What do they say about God? Holy. How many times? Three times, because that's as much as I can, that's the height of being able to ascribe holiness in their thinking. So he's saying, 666, this is a man not, not saved, not submitted to Christ. He's not complete in him. He is the picture of absolute rebellion against God. There's one coming. That will happen. The world stage is pretty ripe. Are you paying attention? World stage is pretty ripe. He could show up any time. But the Bible doesn't tell us this information, so we'll be looking for him. What's our job? He says, when you see these things approach, lift up your eyes. Your redemption draws nigh. We don't look for Antichrist. We look for Jesus Christ. Is that the alarm? I'm supposed to be done? <laughs> I wasn't quite finished. I'm almost done, though. We, we lift up our eyes. Okay, we're looking for Jesus Christ. Okay? We, we want to be informed that these things are going to happen in the world, but our eyes, we, we forget those things behind. We press on to the things ahead. We put our eyes on Christ. We're going after him. He has called us to occupy. You need to understand the world right now is demolishing family. The world is demolishing. Every, every move is to destroy family, destroy marriage, destroy it all. There's one entity on the face of the earth that stands pro-family, and that's the church. And we don't need to be out there screaming at everybody else. We need to get our act together in here. So that means fathers, love your wives. Fathers, love your children. Teach them the word. Spend time in the word with your kids. Get together with the corporate body of Christ and find mentors who can help you. Discipleship that will equip you so that you can fulfill that purpose. Regain the family. Take it back from Caesar. He wants it. The day will come when he will ask you for your allegiance. Remember what we talked about. I only give allegiance to Christ. I only give allegiance to him. He's my Lord. We don't fight for the victory. Christ won the victory. We stand victorious. He's my king. And it is him that I will follow until I see his face. If he comes today, praise the Lord. If he comes tomorrow, Praise the Lord. A year, praise the Lord. Five, praise the Lord. 
I will not ever stop looking for him because I love him. Here's the last thought I want you to think about. Paul, when he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not for me only. To all those who have loved his appearing. Huh. Now, I'm gonna, I want to give you just a couple of stories so you can kind of s- s- sit that idea in your mind. When, uh, when Kathy and I were in our early marriage and, you know, I, I went to this uh, uh, unaccompanied tour in the Marine Corps. So I was alone for a year and a half. Oh, 15 months. So, so I, was, I, I was alone for, she knows, I was alone for 15 months. When the day comes to go home, to go see her. I can't stop looking out the window of the plane. I can't stop pacing. I'm not super patient because I can't wait to see her face. This is how the believer should be considering their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You remember when you were little and it was the Christmas Eve and and you're always running to the window to look out the window like, is Christmas here yet? That's how a believer should be looking at his world. There's a day when Christ will come. And I, I don't know what the world's going to be like. Obviously, we just went through COVID, so you can suffer. And we're still going through upheaval, so there's, there's the, the Bible tells us in this world you will have Tribulation, not the tribulation, but there will be trouble, right? You're going to experience trouble. But he said, don't be afraid of trouble. Why? I have overcome. And if you are in me, you are overcomers. You are overcomers. Lift up your eyes. Look for the return of Christ. And until he comes, keep your eyes on the prize moving forward in Revelation, I want to just read the seven promises you have as an overcomer from the book of Revelation, okay? Revelation 2.7, you have the promise of the tree of life and the paradise of God. Revelation 2.11, you have the promise not to be hurt by the second death. That's hell. Revelation 2.17, you have the promise of hidden manna. That's God's ability to sustain you. Hidden manna. A white stone, white stone means not guilty, and a new name. Jacob, that really mattered a lot. Remember Jacob? He spent his whole life being called liar, liar, liar. Hey, liar, come here. Anybody want to be named liar? No? Jacob means supplanter, heel catcher, deceiver. But when he met God, what did God say? Jacob, you have prevailed in your wrestling with God, I'm going to call you Israel. God has a new name for you. Fourth promise, Revelation 2, 26 and 27. He promises to the overcomer power over the nations to rule them, and he promises you the morning star. Oh, the morning star, that bright and morning star, you know who that is? 
Yes, you, most of the time, if you just say, Jesus, you're probably right. Revelation 3, 5, fifth promise. As overcomers, you will be clothed in white. Your name will not be blot out of the book of life, but rather confessed before the Father by Jesus Christ the Lord. That's going to be amazing. Revelation 3, 12, sixth promise. You will be a pillar in the temple of God with the name of God and the new Jerusalem and the Lord's name. You're going to be like Woody in Toy Story. God's going to write his name on you. He says, he says, look, I'm not afraid to say you're mine. Are you afraid to say I'm yours? The Lord's going to put that name on us. The seventh thing, we will get to sit in the Lord's throne. It's his throne. It ain't mine. But we get to sit. We get to sit with him. There's one more promise at the end of the book. Revelation 21 to the overcomer. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he will be my son to the overcomer. Amen? I talked long enough. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, what your word is declaring to us. God, I pray that we would come to know the truth, Lord, that we would recognize the promise that you give. Jesus, you said you have come and that you brought truth and that truth will set me free. That truth is that I am a sinner separated from God. But Jesus Christ is my mediator. He's my propitiation. He's my redemption. He's the solution to what ails me. When I come to him in faith, I receive that gift repent of my sin and I believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and he washes me white as snow he gives me white raiments to wear and one day Jesus Christ is going to usher me before his father and he's going to introduce me to his father according to Jude verse 24 and 25 and he's going to say, Father, this is Jackie. He's perfect. Isn't he amazing? Look at him. Now, I know who I am. But I'm thankful for what Jesus makes me. Lord, have your way in this place. May we turn our eyes toward you, the only one who is able to save praise for it all in Jesus name. Amen.